Hey, welcome to Manalyzing. This is where men talk about the kind of stuff that men don't talk about. Put your hard hat on, get ready for a ride. Here we go. Lauren Bush, welcome to Manalyzing. You know, Manalyzing is, is generally about men's stories, but we have a lot to, wor- to learn uh, where it comes to women. <laughs> and well, we just have a lot to learn. Oh, you are you are the brains in the room. And if you want to talk to somebody who has the uh, the cranial matter rocking, you talk to Lauren. And you're should I say you're a nurse or a former nurse? Former nurse. You let the license expire because you have uh, another path you've chosen. <laughs> How many kids you've got? Let's let's talk for a minute about your family. I have nine amazing kids. Uh, my oldest just turned eighteen a couple of days ago. My youngest uh-huh. is three. I've got everything in between. Eighteen to three, nine kids. Yep. Mom of nine. For a while there, your Instagram was like mom of seven and then mom of eight. eight. Or... <laughs> I gave up. That's like, ah, <laughs> my name. Lost count. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of kids in there. Yeah. And they make noise, and they have to be fed. Oh, yeah. um, so, um, what would you say? And you grew up in in Delaware. Uh, so part of my childhood in Delaware, part in Florida, then back to Delaware. So between the two states. What's your favorite place of the two? Oh, um, you know, I have different uh, different favorites for different reasons. I loved Florida. I love the beach. I love the sun. I also like having four seasons. Having palm trees at Christmas time is just definitely not the same. Oh, I could totally do palm trees at Christmas time. <laughs> I want the pine trees. I want the snow. I, I like the different experiences. So different different reasons to love both places. And what's your favorite thing to do when you've got time on your hands? If I told you you had a week and I gave you an unlimited budget, what would you do with that time? Uh, something with my kids. I. There's a lot of them, and they are noisy, and they do need to be fed quite often, but they are a lot of fun to be around. I'd find some way to combine some kind of adventure, some kind of learning, because I thrive in the learning environment. I love it. I find ways to learn new things all the time, and my kids and my husband, and I could mash all that into one experience. It would be my ideal week. I'm a little shocked that you didn't say Tahiti or... (laughs) Uh, uh, I would probably go to Tahiti, but there would probably be things that I would like to learn while I'm there. I want to learn <laughs> about the environment and the history of the islands and the people and their culture. Mm-hmm. I just like information. You like it. So so a vacation for you could be someplace where you just have some time on your hands and you get to, would it be a library? Is it time on the internet studying? Is it a book? Um, I mean, I, I like listening to my books. I used to have more time to actually sit and read and hold a book. I think that that's still my, my favorite experience. But for the sake of time, listening while I'm multitasking definitely fits well, in my schedule while you're doing... better. And I don't know about a library. I, I actually really love... Um, conversing and learning from people. I think there's a difference between information written in a book and people sharing that information applied to experience. And I think that I absorb that and I retain it better when I have it applied to some kind of life experience a little better. So you would rather learn from a person who has experiences than learn from a book. Yes. 
This that, does not surprise me. <laughs> I mean, that, that's something I don't go on the internet and read things. Like I, I do research a lot of things on the internet, but I even then I'll look for like the the piece of information, but then I want to see how it's applied. I don't want to just see it as a fact. I, I need to see how it integrates integrates or impacts someone's life experience better. And that for me, it's like a, a filter that I like to place on things. Factoids are not interesting. I, I've, I've always uh, watched Jeopardy with, you know, kind of a uh, skewballed eye. I was like, why would somebody need to know what is being asked and answered here? You know, this these are facts, but they're completely useless. Flashcards are not my thing. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, why would somebody, A, learn this, and B, be interested in hearing somebody else spout useless information? Absolutely. Um, so that's not your thing. And and if it's learning from the, um, from the foibles and travails of other people, who's your favorite person to learn from? What, what was one of your favorite stories? Oh, um, you know... Again, I, I have a hard time just choosing one. I think that there are, um, for example, one of my favorite stories that I love to share is about my Uncle Jeff. Mm -hmm. And this isn't, again, most people are like, oh, this this really smart person who's been through these great things. My uncle uh, actually struggled with addiction throughout his life. And I remember as a teenager, um, my now husband, my boyfriend and I at the time, uh, we would actually go down and we would pick him up off the streets of Baltimore. We would bring him back home. Um, and he'd stay for us a couple couple days in between his um, methadone treatments. And I remember him, um, you know, I remember this one time sitting in a room with him and he just kind of went blank and he like passed out mid-sentence. And I remember this thought inside my head going, sorry, I'm going to cry just because. Crying is perfectly think, allowed on this show. It's a bad thing to think about family, but I remember being embarrassed I remember being like slightly disgusted and I'm like, how'd you do this to yourself? Like, did, did, do you need a camera? Like, do you need to see like what drugs have turned you into? Like, why did you choose this path? Because he, in his heart, he was one of the most caring, loving, passionate people. And to see someone that you see greatness in, to see them in pieces, to see them in that state I think it makes it harder because if you see somebody doesn't have potential, like whatever, they didn't really waste anything, but I knew his heart. And I, like my biological father took off right before I was born. He was, my uncle was the one that gave me my first bath. Like every time he saw me, he told me how loved I was, like genuinely a really good person, but to be living on the streets, addicted to heroin, in and out of treatment, in and out of jail. Like that's my whole growing up experience was visiting him in and out of jail. He was clean again. He wasn't clean. Like that whole experience. And then to see him just like melt into a pile, I remember feeling disgust. And then I had this voice come into my, I had this voice come into my head. And he said, he chose this path so that those around him could love, learn lessons from it. We have to see what not to do at times to know what to do. And it was like my correction, like you have no right to judge him, but you do have a right to learn from him and what he'd been through. And what I didn't know at that stage and much later, I ended up talking to my mom and like all these things um, after he passed, um, that he was sexually abused as a teenager. And that was his way of numbing and forgetting what happened to him was his drug use. And so again, it was a correction, like, okay, this is where we need to heal. This is something that has run in the family long enough. And you have a choice. You have a choice to either heal 
you have a choice to make a course correction for your own life. You can't shove it down. You can't just ignore that things happen, or this is the path that you're also going to follow down. And so for me, again, it's not these brilliant, smart people that are, are book smart. It's the life experiences that we can all learn into. And then from that, I'm able to spend time researching. How do you heal? How do you find the the path that helps you work through the traumas that you've experienced, help other people. What is the long-term impact of not doing it? Say addiction doesn't come into my life for that choice, but other things, what is the long-term impact? And so that's where I do dive into the research and I do like going down the rabbit holes on the internet and say, okay, what else can stem off of this? I can help other people learn the lessons that I'm, I'm learning at the same time. How do you heal? I'm going to steal that. That, that is, those are some strong, words um and you know for men you also mentioned another one of our of men's favorite pastimes and that's shoving things down and you know we talk about that on every show and how we're trash compactors and we shove it down and we shove it down until there ain't no more shoving and then we blow up and it comes out like puke and it's unpleasant and then there are victims um and shoving it down doesn't work but uh how do you heal does? And I've talked to a number of guys, uh, Todd, who we both know very, very well. I think if there was an award for coolest man on the planet, <laughs> that, that dude would be a strong candidate. Absolutely. And his method of, um, of dealing, uh, he came on here and his is one of my favorite podcasts, but he talked about how his method of dealing was Jack Daniels. And he talked about why that didn't work for him, surprisingly. You know, who, who would have thought that uh, good old buddy Jack wasn't the answer? Yeah, not therapy in a bottle. <laughs> um, so your, what you just told me is that one of your, your favorite ways to learn is from people. And one of your favorite people to learn from was, is a guy who was an addict and on the streets yeah. and in jail. That's going to su- su- surprise some people. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, I think that we're placed in the experience of community, in families, in in our friendships, to learn from each other. And I think that again, knowledge without application, it it doesn't have the same impact. But if you have have applied knowledge and you get to see uh, long term impacts, short term impacts, and you get to see. Um, the realities of choices, I think that that can have a greater impact for good, for change, can be more inspiring in life than just facts on a page. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think most of us, I think it has to hit the heart for us to have the action. If it hits the head, you're like, nice to know. Thank you. (laughs) I want to hear another story about somebody else who you learned from because because your first at-bat was pretty darn good. (laughs) Um, Okay, so another person that um, I've learned from, uh, so there's, um, Heinz Kegi. He's a, he's a long term, a long time friend of our, our family. Oh he's yeah. Been I've, around. I've met him. He's, he's from him. like Germany, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, incredibly brilliant, surrounded by some of the most amazing human beings, uh, from a psychology standpoint on the planet. Um, I've loved learning from him for a different reason for, for me, his, his whole career, he's traveled the globe. He's interacted with people in almost every country. 
um, at the highest point in their careers, some of their lowest point in their careers, like asking to turn things around. Um, he's watched people who have um, gotten stuck in the muck of their past and that's prohibited them from moving forward and helped them work through that. And so I've really enjoyed learning from him because he has the perspective of different cultures, different communities, um, different people from all different walks of life. And that merging of that knowledge where it all comes together, um, seeing that we're not so different, seeing that it doesn't matter if you're at your highest or your lowest, we, we all experience the same struggles. Um, I've really enjoyed that. And also the different lens of, of cultures. Again, European culture is very different than American culture. So the way that they mm -hmm. perceive um, the struggles or um, community impacts into our lives is very different. And so that's been something that's been really fun to learn from. Yeah, I was just listening to a book on uh, on audio, Audible. Yeah. And uh, she was talking about that in, in one of the sections she was, she was doing. Apparently, if you go to, um, I forget if it was China or Japan or both, but if you're taking a business card from them, you do that with both hands. Okay. Uh, and if you're getting off the plane, they're going to be in suits. You better be in a suit. And at the same time, if you're dealing with someone from the Middle East, uh, they're not going to do anything with both hands because the left hand apparently is dirty. It's less than. And um, so I, I find that fascinating and mind-boggling. And, yeah, I, I don't do that, and there's probably good reason for that. <laughs> Such a simple guy that I'm like, this has always worked for me for the last thousand years. Um, you said something like, um, you know, we're all the same. I'm going to say that uh, some of our experiences are different. The pain that we feel is perhaps similar. Absolutely. Uh, for example, and I've not mentioned this on a podcast before, but uh, I went through, it's called Great Life. It's one of those self-help courses that lasts for a few weeks. And I had my own insecurities. I was sure that uh, people didn't want me there and that I was a somewhat-ish welcome person in the room. And uh, so we were talking about that and uh, trying to get to the one insult that cut the, the most. And for me, after some exploration, it was, I remembered my mom calling me that damn kid. And, uh, you know, my mom was an angel, except for when I was that damn kid. And I was like, she could at least remember my name. <laughs> um, and, and so for the rest of the, of the exercise, people referred to me as that damn kid. And it kind of worked because it's really hard to, to hurt my feelings anymore because I've been to the bottom and survived that. Uh, still. Um, it hurt. It, there, there was a day when that really hurt. Um, what sort of pain uh, are you dealing with or have you dealt with? Um, well, like I mentioned, my, my uncle's story. So sexual abuse actually runs in my family. I, I'm not sure that I have a single family member from the generation prior to me that didn't experience it on some level. And sadly, it's, it's worked its way into to current generations. Um, so that's, that's probably been a huge focus of mine is, 
is why has that become so prevalent? So it's the statistics right now are one in four girls will be sexually abused. Most often as a child, it's usually under the age of 18 and one in 13 men. So statistics aren't so great for, for men either. So it's something that's very prevalent in our society in America. Uh, it's actually one in three globally. So it's worse outside of American culture, but oh, in, our, wow. in our culture, it's it's very prevalent and at very young ages. And it's, I think, 80% of the time, it's a close family member or friend. So it's something that has impacted multiple people that I really love and care about, something that's impacted me personally, something I have, I have four daughters, I have five sons, you know, like I, it's statistics that I would like to, to change, to, to be able to battle against. And I think that um, the best way, the best way that I can learn or become passionate about is it was something since I experienced it, I know the damage it causes, I know the pain that it causes. And so because of that, it makes me a, a better protector of my children. Um, but also I don't want my kids to live in a bubble. I want my kids to experience life, maybe not to experience the same trauma that I have experienced, but I want them to get out in the world. I totally don't want to. We need different trauma than that. <laughs> I prefer a different experience. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's have a little different learning moment, please. We don't need to pass this on any further. Whatever we haven't learned so far, I'd like my kids to learn it without the experience of it. Yeah, it's and Todd again talks about that in, in his thing about uh, about how to protect your family. Um, we did a separate podcast with him about uh, back in the day about um, how to protect your family from being sexually trafficked or human trafficked. Uh, but it's, you know, I can't begin to guess how much that that must invade your life. And I think, you know, even the uh, the statistics that you provided are probably way low. Oh, it's highly underreported. Yeah. Highly underreported. Because, yeah, how many people report that? And, you know, and if there's that many people that report that, yeah. So, for example, in college, I had a few girlfriends because once they got to know me, they dumped me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I decided. Um but I got, I had a few that I got close enough to to find out, uh, you know, whether they'd been sexually assaulted. Every one of them. And yeah, that's frightening. Mine, mine wasn't reported. My generations before me, nobody. It, it was, it was never reported. And I think even now, um, I mean, they're working to change the laws on statute of limitations, but even statute of limitations, when you know that reporting it by the time that you feel like you can face it. Uh huh. But what's going to be, what's, what, what comes out of that? And if nothing can come out of it, what's the point about bringing that up? What's the point about facing that damage yet again and, and digging the, like uncovering something that's been rotting and molding in the ground? Like you don't want to uncover it again because nothing's going to, in your mind, nothing's going to happen. Nothing better becomes of it. So it's better to just leave it where it lies. The damage happened there. Let's not revisit that moment and then dig it back out of out of the earth right so yeah i agree it's highly underreported and uh statistics are alarming enough with what the report rate is now that you mentioned let's not revisit it and, and dig it up and it's moldy and let's let it stay moldy do you want to revisit it and unmold it yes um so i don't think that the the details uh mm -hmm. matter i think that the what i'd love to focus on is I'd like to draw um, or create a better picture of what the impact is, right. especially because with the statistics of one in four girls, 
the likelihood that any man listening to this podcast is going to have a woman in their life that they love and they care, care very much about that has been down this path, having a better understanding of how to support her or what she's going through. Um, I was just, you know, in my head picturing like for, for my husband, if I were to just look at him and his four daughters, the statistics is that one of his four daughters will have to go through. So as a father, he needs to understand this so he can support his daughter. So even in, even as big and as scary and as protective as he is, the statistics are one of our four daughters will experience it, right? Um, if, if you don't have four daughters. Or two. Or two, yeah, or more. Right? Or three, you yeah. Go for the reporting, right? the under-reporting, right? Um, if you don't have four daughters, What's the likelihood between your mom, your grandmother, an aunt, and a coworker? Like people that you interact with on a daily basis have experienced this type of trauma, and it's going to impact them and their relationship and their interactions with you consciously or, or subconsciously. It's just going to come out. So I think the important part is um, I would just like to paint the picture of what that looks like right. throughout the lifespan, right? Let's do that. Um, so my, my first, uh, the first time that I was assaulted was when I was 12 years old. Um, at the time it was, it was somebody very close to me. It was somebody that everybody thought, no, this could never happen. In fact, to the point when I came forward and I told, I was laughed at, like literally like, there's no way you totally misunderstood, must've been a bad dream. And so that was a secondary trauma of like, I already didn't understand what was happening. I knew something bad was happening because of how it felt inside, but I didn't know how to word it. I either worded it incorrectly or I just totally misinterpreted what just happened as something. Maybe I did make it up, right? So it's doubting yourself. And unfortunately that led to it happening several more times to the point where I'm like, okay, I know this is, this is bad. I know that this is something that shouldn't be happening. And um, luckily it's, it did stop for me. And I got to the point because I had been not believed, but it wasn't worth discussing again. It wasn't worth talking about to the point where I did. I buried it. And it was like, it wasn't even like a thought in the back of my mind. I could interact with this person without that even like coming to mind. It was like, oh yeah, it never happened. Obviously, like I, I just misunderstand what was happening, right? Then come a time where I get married because it happened to me while I was sleeping uh, twice. Um, I get married. I have a husband that's in bed with me and in the middle of the night, he wants to put his arm around me. And it's immediately all these emotions. It's immediately all these feelings that I couldn't understand because I had buried something so deep that I was like, what in the world? Like, why am I disgusted that my husband just tried to put his arm around me while we're sleeping? Like, that should be something that's like, wonderful. I'm protected. I'm no, I was like, absolutely disgusted. And so as you're interacting with these women, there are going to be things that are triggers. There'd be reminders. That might seem like a more obvious one. Yes, yeah, somebody put their arm around you while you were sleeping, where you thought like you were safe and no one should touch you, right? Like, but somebody else, it might be a drink, it might be a smell, it might be a tree that they see, or a house that they see, or a barn. Like it could be anything visually, any any of the five senses, and there's a trigger. And if they're not self-aware enough to relate it back to when the trauma happens, they're immediately gonna latch it onto you because you're the only thing that's there. And all of a sudden I feel this way and I'm going to blame you because you were there. And I, I don't know why I feel this way other than I'm with you and here, and here it is. Right. So it definitely takes a, a level of self-awareness. Um, and then also for, for you as a male, like being there to realize, like, I'm not going to take this personal. I'm going to let you work through this, but also very persistent encouragement. 
that was a big thing that my husband was always good at. I had, I had actually told my husband he was aware. Um, we got married at 19. So it wasn't like at 19, he was like, I know exactly how to handle this and process this or encourage you to process or work through this. Right. Um, but you know, through the years, there've been moments that has come up over and over again. And that, that same trauma, and it was always persistent encouragement because my first experience of trying to get help was laughter. Anytime that my husband was like, you need to get help. I was like, I'm not, I don't want help because help is mean. Help doesn't believe me. Help doesn't help. Right. I don't want to tell anybody yeah, you, else. About you tried it. help. I you, tried help. And you, and you were laughed at. Yes. That's, yes. that's not, that's not fun. No. It's not just the, uh, the event or the events itself. It's the memories and the fear. Uh, but I'm guessing, I guess I'm using words. Uh, what, what, what was that like? I think, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head. It's definitely PTSD because it's definitely going the minute that, um, those feelings would come forward. It was being exactly back in the moment. It was it was like being bathed in all the emotions, all the senses, like at one time and your body's just like on super high alert. And it, it would often like take days for me to be able to come out of it. Um, and again, persistent encouragement. Hey, there are people that can help. There is ways that we can talk about this. Like, let's find the way that you can work through it without shaming me, without taking it personal. And that could have been a really easy thing for a man to feel very rejected. I'm just trying to like comfort my wife. I'm just trying to be next to my wife. And this is always triggering you. Like, that could have been something that he took very personal, but he was a good enough man to be able to just step back and be like, you're working through something. This isn't about me. It's about your experience. And I'm here to love you through it. Okay. So what I want to do now is uh, given your expertise in so many categories is I want to take some scenarios and have you walk us through. I want to have one scenario where it's like, okay, now I'm married to a woman who is, who has been abused and and the PTSD shows up at random moments. The next one is going to be, um, I'm the dad and my daughter just got abused. And then we'll go from there. Okay. So, so let's, let's do that first one. Um, how do you feel about that? I love it. I, I love, I love working through scenarios. So um, for me, what, what I found worked really well for me, is because my first uh, cry for help was rejected by somebody externally, uh -huh. the idea of going back and asking for help outside was petrifying to me. That was another trauma that I had to deal with, right? Uh -huh. So it was one of the, the great things that John has always done is he, he also likes to find resources. Who can we talk to? Who can we, where can we find the help? And I actually found a lot of help in books. So it's a lot of audible books that work on like mindset, um, family genealogy and trauma that travels travels that way, um, it, where your mind doesn't control you and also having a, a much higher understanding of the impact of our emotions. There's a, an amazing book. It's uh, Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. We always think that time heals all wounds. No. No. <laughs> time, it amplifies them. Oh, no, yeah. Yes, because now we have other life experiences that kind of latched onto them. It just becomes this heavier weight of anchors dragging behind. Yeah, and we all have our demons, and uh, especially, I'm going to say especially for me, but I don't know if it if that's true. For me, uh, anytime my mind goes into neutral, and as a guy, our minds go into neutral all the time. <laughs> But then my demons come at me. Look at that stupid thing you did. Look at that stupid thing you did. You're hopeless. Yeah. Let's let's have you talk first to the child 
who just had that traumatic experience. She doesn't know what to believe, think, or do. She can't go to the people who should be able to provide her the answers because maybe they're complicit, maybe she doesn't trust them, maybe they're the problem. What do you tell that girl? You know, um, for me personally, I can't say in every incident, you know, luckily for me, the it stopped. Not every 12-year-old girl does it stop. It can be something they experience till adulthood, till they can get away, till they have some way of escaping, right? For me personally, the act itself wasn't something I understood. Like I can distinctly remember um, being asked uh, as an as an adult, "Do you know?" I'm gonna, I'm just gonna I'm gonna say the words because it is what it is. Do you know if he ejaculated? And at 12 years old, I didn't know what that word meant. I didn't know what that was. And so, as an adult, to hear that word. To understand that that's what could have happened or did happen, it was reliving a trauma, right? So at 12 years old, the way that we process and experience a trauma at a level of a 12-year-old would understand sex, would understand um, that that type of experience, it's very different than an adult. For me, the, t- the time that was bought to be older, to be able to process things, was actually a blessing. Now, again, the trauma stopped for me. I couldn't say that for the 12 year old who still experiences it and experiences it often and until they can escape. Um, I would hope that she was brave enough to be able to reach out and get the help. Anybody who will listen, just don't stop talking. Uh-huh. Don't stop talking. Keep reaching out for the help. Um, one thing I, and this is probably more specific to our, to our church culture is I did actually reach out to church help because I thought, Mm-hmm. That's my next backup, right? I'm going to go right. to the bishop. And unfortunately, our bishops are actually not trained <laughs> to manage this. Like, it's not something that they're taught to handle. So when they were brought in, it was bring all the parties in and let's all discuss it together. And then oh, it was dear. like, do we all believe Lauren? You know, like it was, it wasn't actually a good experience. Um, so I, I did try multiple times, but for, for anybody else, <laughs> reach outside of church, reach uh-huh. outside of the people that are not able to protect you. And oftentimes the teacher is a really great, you know, can be an ally um, to other family members. I'm sure if I had reached out to other family members, hope would have been given. But yeah, do you believe that because you said uh, nothing, or or your efforts at saying something weren't profitable, do you believe that he continued to abuse others? No, um, un- unfortunately, what caused him to be what he was um was triggers from his own past he was in and out of the foster care system Mm -hmm. and received the same same type of abuse and so he has always been very isolated and he misinterpreted what love looks like that's not an excuse what he did was wrong but but for him this is what love is this is how we show affection this is how an adult treats a child like he had some wiring gone wrong from his own past I also became very hypervigilant around him for my own protection, uh-huh. but it, it also watched out for other people. And I had a, led a very sheltered life, very protected. I was never not at the house. So it wasn't, it wasn't a situation where it was predatorial out looking for people kind of experience. Right. 
Let's go to the uh, the dad scenario. Uh, let's say that you were doing a sleepover and you got abused over there by whoever, either either somebody your age or the dad over there. And you're going to your dad now and you're telling the story and he believes you. We'll set the scenario up that far. What is your advice to that dad? Uh, he's going to want to just go grab his shotgun. Yep. Um, you can't protect a daughter that you're no longer with. You go grab the shotgun, you go attack that man, you're going to be put in jail as well. Okay. And so you won't be able to protect her beyond that moment. Oh. My first thought is it's worth it. My second thought is... <laughs> so you want it to happen again. Because the, the statistics on girls who are abused once, they end up becoming repeat, repeatedly abused. Uh -huh. Because... They end up feeling broken. They end up feeling used up and they don't set the same boundaries. So do you want to be able to protect her for the next 20 years mm. or just get revenge? Because that revenge is really about you. It's not actually about your daughter. That's true. It's your emotion. It's your anger and you want to take it out on somebody. Right. In that moment, your daughter needs you by your side. And she's going to have to re-understand what safe contact looks like, what it's safe to be around my dad. And you're the one that's the best to teach her that men aren't the bad guys that that person was the bad guy, not all men, right? So your constraint, you're, you're holding back and actually getting the right people involved is gonna help her far more. Besides that, it won't actually make her feel better because the other the bad guy's taken on the situation. They're still processing. Like it, The processing doesn't happen because the bad guy's eliminated. The processing, it needs therapy. So Processing is gonna occur regardless. Yeah. And ideally, you're going to be there to help her process yes. as opposed to being in uh, Supermax prison. Absolutely. Yeah. You mean, so I can't hang him by his toes and then fillet him <laughs> inch by inch? Preferably not. <laughs> she needs, she definitely needs you by, by her side, not, not left up. But think of all the fun I could have. Oh, I know. I think a lot of people would have a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Second thought that comes to mind is Hitman, but you know. Same result. It, there's still a, a very wise phrase, and that is hurt people hurt people. Uh -huh. And so realizing that abuse is cyclical, it's not something that just comes out of nowhere. It's a really hard place to get to where you can have empathy for someone who has caused pain, but realizing that they are most often reacting out of programming that was put into them from their own experiences or from past generations, right? So there is this awesome um, study that was put out, I don't know, 2015 or so. They did this experiment with mice. And what they did was they sprayed um, the smell of a cherry blossom into the, the mice's cage, and then they shocked the wiring of the floor for the mice. And so the mice ended up learning, anytime I smell cherry blossom, I know pain is coming. They were They were prepared for this response, right? Then they bred those mice and the next generation if they smelled cherry blossom immediately had a ptsd response their bodies were programmed to know cherry blossom is pain they found that for at least three generations that same programming happened so three generations of mice later smelled cherry blossom ptsd response now i've had children since since my trauma Mm -hmm. And all of my children, not just my daughters, all nine children now have the programming for a trauma response. Oh, man. It's carried best on sperm, 
men carry that programming better than women. Uh-huh. So the men who are the perpetrators are most often carrying trauma from generations past, at minimum of three. So now just think about for you, for your generation, think about the Great Depression. Was, uh-huh. that, was that grandpa or was that dad? Um, my dad was pretty young through that. He would have been about 19 in 1940. So yeah, he, he was a teenager through that. Teenager. That's a, that's a hard thing. And your grandfather went through it, right? So you just think about what extreme cultural traumas were happen, happening. And then we have these additional traumas, these same statistics from generations past, the sexual traumas that are, are also coming forward. So, so we have that, right? There's programming that a lot of us don't even realize that we have, that we've been dealing with, that cause us to react or act in all the wrong ways. And we're like, I don't even know why. And nobody's talked about, like like you said, underreported, right? This is an under underreported thing. My grandmother didn't report it. My mom didn't report it. My great-grandmother didn't report it. In fact, she ran a, she ran a, a brothel out of her house. Like, she was the reason it happened to her daughters, right? So, like, there's, like, massive trauma and programming that's been done on a genetic level that people aren't even aware of. And then they're like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, why did I do that? Like, I can't even explain. There's a lot of people that, like, the programming has, has been set. And, again, it's not an excuse. It doesn't make it right. But at least having enough empathy to be like, something is wrong with you. You also need help. Like, you need some therapy as well, right? Yeah, let's go that direction. Now you're talking to a man who is like, I have already raped somebody who was a child. I know what's wrong. I hate myself. I know I'm going to want to do it again next week. Help me. You get help. Where, how? I mean, there is therapists that specialize in this. There's a lot of chemical castration options so that the urges aren't even there. Um, I don't I don't really know what the full rehab for someone in that instance is. Uh-huh. I do know that our society and the chemicals and the culture and the information available to reprogram us has set those people up for failure. So chemical castration would work. I'm not sure um, how far, what the results are of chemical castration. You have no libido. None. You have no drive. You're, you're a zombie. You're, yes. you're a drone. You're a eunuch. Okay. That would work. That would work. So a dude is going to go, I don't want to have that done to me. But then, at least the engineer in me says, let's compare risk and reward. Yeah. Uh, you could be a drone for the rest of your life, or you could know that you are the person that caused another person and perhaps all of their grandchildren to live a life of, what's the word? Depression? Um, hell. Well, let's go with hell. Yeah. And so you're going to trade that uh, castration for someone else's hell and also your own. I mean, hurt people hurt people, right? So they're living in their own form of hell. If they're really understanding the damage that they're causing, uh-huh. they're living in their own form of hell and hurt people hurt other people, right? right? So unless we all start getting the help and start understanding the programming that's already built into us and what that damage is doing, it's just cycles of hurt and pain repeating themselves. Yeah. Um... Now, 
what about the guy who goes, well, you know, if everybody's doing it, then I'm, I'm another uh, drop in the ocean. So why the heck not? What's your response? Well, I mean, I feel like uh, one person's impact, it, it's like you said, it's far reaching. Do, do we understand that it is causing generations of damage? Uh-huh. And I think that the better that we communicate that, I think the better that people learn that, that they realize that they're not a drop in the ocean. I mean, we have ripple effects for every decision we make. Whatever you ate for breakfast has ripple effects. You know what uh-huh. I mean? So think about how far larger the ripple is when we have something like sexual assault that we've done to someone. That ripple effect is is far greater. So I don't know that it's so much a ripple, uh, not realizing that we have an impact. I think it's more, again, having that really honest conversation with you. Do I know why I do what I do? Do I know why I feel the way I'm feeling? Am I willing to like be introspective? Am I willing, am I willing to question what I am thinking, what I think I know to be true, what I think the right experience is? Are we willing to, to question that? And uh, one of the other conversations I think, you know, ties into this. We, we talked about maybe doing this as a separate chat, but the whole testosterone levels dropping uh-huh. over the last, I don't know, since early 1960s. Right. When we look at what that impact is on men's health and their mental health, one of the biggest feeders for pornography is men with depression. Men's testosterone levels drop. Mm-hmm. Men are depressed. Men turn to pornography. One of the biggest feeders for child sexual abuse, pornography. So we have to realize that all of these things are tying together. These are all connected and understanding what the impact is and being able to tie that back to, okay, if, we, if we're really going to past traumas at 1% a year is what testosterone levels are dropping right now. So that's, and that started in 1980. So we're now 40% lower, a man at 50 right now, their Ouch. testosterone levels are 50, 40% lower than in 1980. Depression. Like it ever, like it impacts so many aspects of health, but like you just take away a man's drive for life and things aren't going to fire right in the brain. And I think that so many times we look at hormones as like this singular chemical construct. It just has this one action. It just has this one purpose. Hormones control your brain. It controls the way it fires. It controls the way you think. Talk, talk to any woman, woman who's ever struggled with severe PMS. I'm sorry, I was just crazy when they come out of it, right? Like when we're in the middle of it, we're like, I don't know why I'm so angry. I don't know why I want to scream and yell. And like, it's out of control emotion. Right. So to not respect the fact that if that's also happening to men, that their brain is now going to be wired differently and they're going to react to the men and women in their lives differently. I just think that that's a... So, willful, willful ignorance. <laughs> I, uh, and I have to, you know, put out on the table right now, I've got a fresh new set of nine testosterone pellets that have been shoved into my butt cheeks. And, uh, and there's a big old lump right where they are. They're trying to come back out. So I'm, I'm low on testosterone too. Um, the, the whole testosterone thing. Yeah. That, it, it, there, there was a day when I, before I figured out what was going on. And so I've got two strikes against me. First, I'm a man. Second is I'm an engineer. And so I figure, I figure, I figure that I can basically choose my emotion and based on what's going on outside me, I can calculate how I feel about that. 
very engineer. Very I don't engineer. know all men think that way. That's very engineering. <laughs> and I feel like it's one of those things where if you tell me exactly what my surroundings are, I will tell you what my emotion is about it. And I'll usually tell you that I have no emotion because I'm an engineer. Um, and then there came a day when I was like, I'm feeling X. And there's no reason for that. There's there are sometimes when I can tell I'm low because I'll just go to one scenario after another again when my mind is blank, and I'll go to well this happened five years ago and that pissed me off and I'm going to just sit Do in it. that right, and then I I actually find myself going yeah that was five years ago let's move on, and then thirty seconds later, I'm in another place where I'm like, "Oh, yeah, this is something that I'm really pissed about, and then I'll stew on that for a while, and I have to actually mentally pull myself out and say, "No, we're gonna live today yeah. um but I realized that I am not choosing my own emotions, and that just blows my mind, yeah. so the testosterone does go a long way oh it goes a it goes a very long way, and again. One of the biggest things, like, I think for women, when we hear testosterone and we think a man's sex drive going down, some of us might often feel relief. And it might be because of the statistics. We're like, thank you. I'm glad you're turning that off. I don't feel threatened by you anymore. I'm actually happy that your testosterone levels are, are dropping. Women have testosterone too. Our drive uh -huh. also goes down. And actually a healthy libido is a sign of vitality. Like it's what drives all of us, not just men. But when men lose their testosterone, that drive, they're losing their drive for life. Right. It immediately means depression. And again, statistics show that men who view pornography have depression issues. They're using that as like their inspiration. Trying to feel something again is looking at pornography. And then you look at the same statistics for pornography and it's fueling child sex abuse and sex trafficking. And so it's a really nasty, gnarly loop. And we're like, well, it's okay. At least his, his libido's dropped equal with mine it's like no you you want your husband to be like full swing because it's it's their protector mechanism it's their provider mechanism it's it is really that what inspires them to take every action in life looking after if they're raised properly looking after the people that they're in charge of caring for and as a woman you don't want it to drop either we definitely don't want to step into this thing where we're like automatically just fielding men into this like lower mindset and over to pornography and then we have this horrible cycle that we're trying to break in the trauma and abuse just continues well, on the porn you know i know a guy uh, who i'm fairly close to who um he he got into porn enough that it cost him his marriage and he was at one of the tribe meetings the other day and he started to cry he said uh, my ex-wife remarried and now that guy she, he said there's he's stealing my kids they're calling him dad now. And the level of pain that that sentence caused him, you know, he's, you want to say, well, he's always the dad, but not if he's getting them 20% of the time. And, you know, the level of pain that's caused him, yeah. uh, you know, and then porn or any other addiction, um, not something you can just swear off you mess with the dopamine dopamine levels in the brain right so like again you're messing with another neurotransmitter another chemical that controls your thoughts controls how you're feeling Ooh, talk to me about dopamine and neurotransmitters and <laughs> uh, so dopamine's like your your pleasure response like it's your reward chemical i did this and i got this and dopamine levels surge sometimes it's sugar 
it's sometimes it's pleasure, whatever, it's the surge. And then your brain is constantly looking for new ways to be like, I really enjoyed that. Let's make some more dopamine. What can we do next? And so <clears throat> addiction, addiction specifically, it, it feeds off that, that dopamine response. And you'll notice a lot of people who struggle with, with uh, chemical addictions also struggle with sugar addictions or sexual addiction. Like sugar is it's a big feeder into, into dopamine, but it reprograms your brain. It reprograms how every cell in your brain is communicating with each other and what it's looking for from, for messaging. And some of my favorite, some of my favorite authors, my favorite would probably be like Bruce Lipton, um, the power, Bruce Lipton, I'm trying to remember what is it, the power, of, oh, the biology of belief, brilliant book, but it actually talks about how your thinking uh, impacts your feeling, impacts your action, and how you have to reprogram the way you think so that your actions end up changing, right? But it all goes into your neurotransmitters. It's the chemicals, it's the hormones, it's everything that's communicating with your brain. So hormones and neurotransmitters work like a lock and key on your cells. And every cell has a very specific set of locks. So not every chemical in your body can communicate with every cell. But hormones and neurotransmitters they have like their own, like they have a master key, <laughs> the skeleton key, like, right. They come in and they communicate. And the more that they have to communicate with each other in this specific way, dopamine surge, great dopamine surge. It's like a, a highway is formed. And then you got to work on breaking down that highway. If you don't want to continue thinking that way or acting that way, because mm -hmm. the highway, a highway has been formed, like the amount of demolition and destruction to break down a highway and be like, that was actually wrong. I should have been doing this. And you got to rebuild it a completely different way. It's, it's a lot of work. But it's not impossible. You can break down a highway. You can reroute roads. We do it all the time. And his book is all about how you do it in your brain. What's the name of that book again? Uh, Bruce Lipton. It's called The Biology of Belief. I'm going to have to do that one. It's brilliant. I mean, it goes into like one of my, one of my favorite things I learned from his book, um, which totally applies here. I should have thought about it earlier, is he talks about um, World War II. And he talks about how we had this generation where the men went off to war and the women no longer were just the stay-at-home mom. Now they had to be provider and mom. Right. Then the husbands come back home and the husbands are broken because war is horrid. And right. They saw horrible things. They come home and the wife said, I just provided for our kids without you. Uh, I just cared for our kids without you. You came home with problems. You're not actually able to support us. I still have to work. I still have to care for the kids. And now I have to care for you. I'd rather not have you around because it's one more job to do versus I'm so happy my husband came home safe. And it was a generation unprepared for that situation. Right. And not really dying to dive back into like the submissive role. No, I just earned money. I can do it without you. Like the, the, the beginning of the feminist, the feminist movement, right? So generations of that, of like, I don't know how to deal with what I just saw, experienced losing my friends, like all of this. And now my wife is able to do what I was supposed to be doing. What was my job? What What is my role anymore? And how that that's impacted generations. Yeah, I can see how a guy, and that's not just uh, World War II. It's, I think it's every war, but the woman gets uh, a, a rhythm going, a routine, and he comes in and screws it all up. And... There's some adjustment to be made there, and he's going to be going, you know, I don't have a role or a value here. I don't have a meaning. Yeah. And so then the next thing is, uh, let's go let's go see our friend Jack Daniels and see what he has to say about that. Absolutely. Uh, and then your dad dealt with that. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then you have a kid and you're dealing with that trauma that you're like, I wasn't in the war, but you're still dealing with the, the, the DNA changes that happened because of your dad being off at war. And so you're dealing with baggage and you're like, didn't even live this baggage and I've got to deal with it. Yes. You got to work through and process it too. Because on a genetic level, the baggage was literally handed off and it was like, here, son, here you go. <laughs> and if you don't deal with it, now you're handing grandpa's baggage, baggage, your baggage, and you're handing it down to your son. And you're like, here you go. Just a little bit more love passing it your way. So you've, uh, somebody came, uh, came to you and uh, unloaded a, uh, a 10 ton truck of baggage on you. Yeah. And you're still carrying all or some of that. Let's say you meet Lauren from Planet Zerog, <laughs> who also has your uh, your your same baggage. Uh, what's your conversation going to be like? How how are you going to try and help each other? Um, well, mostly discussing walking through the trauma. I think a, a lot of times, I think part of the uh, the pause or mm -hmm. the distraction from healing is not having anybody to discuss it with, not wanting to discuss it, and not knowing what it is. So if I didn't know what my grandmother had been through, if I didn't know what my mom had been through, and I'm having baggage, like it's a lot easier to like say, this one actually was supposed to go to the trash. This one's recycling. Like, what am I actually supposed to be keeping? What what had value and what needed to be discarded of? Knowing, like doing your genealogy, going back and talking to family members and understanding what was actually handed to you, first off, makes processing it a whole lot easier. Because that's basically you're going to a garbage processing plant with all of your garbage, right? But you need to know what actually needed to be sorted off. And what was the nuggets of gold? What were the things that you needed to learn? Because I don't, I mean, I, I believe in a, an amazing creator. I don't think he like put us down here and be like, well, how can I make this extra miserable? <laughs> oh, we're going to make trauma hand down generation to generation, right? Like, what was his intention? Why did he design it so the trauma would hand down generationally? There has to be a gold nugget inside of that. And it's what are you supposed to learn from that experience? If we don't learn, if we don't have those experiences, we don't grow. And we all obviously aren't going to become better generation to generation. We're going to become dumber and dumber and harder and meaner and nastier, right? So you have to know what you're processing. You have to know what you're working through. What was the trash and what was the gold nugget to pull away from it? Instead of it being trash, it's handed down gener generation to generation. It, it's wealth. It's a wealth of knowledge. It's a wealth of growth. It's a wealth of opportunity to become a better person and to be able to help the next generation become better prepared for what might come their way so they can do things differently. One thing that I think is true um, is that when we uh, die and go to the other side and meet our maker, we're going to see... And this is why suicide is is such a problem. We're going to see what we did to everybody else, good, bad, or sideways. Mm -hmm. And I think that your abuser, if he were to see the pain that he caused you, uh, he's got to feel that. He's going to feel every inch of that pain. And... That alone, I don't know how many other hundreds or thousands of people he managed in his or dealt with in his life, but that alone is hell. Yeah. He's going to feel that. He's going to deal with that. And I don't know what dealing with that means. Uh, at the same time, you know, if you're, if you go around lifting other people, I believe we're going to feel that. And that alone isn't hell. 
that that's going to be a little more pleasant. And I think for me, that's my motivator in trying to do more good than uh, than otherwise is I would rather feel how I lifted somebody and know, yeah, I did that. I helped them than, oh my gosh, I caused, I caused that kind of pain. And now how am I going to pay for that or get over it or get past it or move through it or, I, you know, something like that. You asked me earlier, um, saying something to a person who has caused damage. Uh-huh. And I think that someone who realizes that they've done something wrong, I think the first reaction is always, how can I hide it? How can I make it go away? Like, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Like, anytime anybody makes a mistake, like, I trip on the sidewalk. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I hope people didn't just see me, like, trip and fall over absolutely nothing, right? Like, they're... There is a sense of embarrassment when you understand something was wrong. And I think for most people, the automatic reaction is how do we hide it? How do we cover this up? Like, that's embarrassing. And I don't even know how to make it right. And I, I genuinely feel like unless someone has like, the wiring is all wrong. I mm-hmm. think that that is a natural reaction to be like, oh, can we make it go away? Because I, like, I don't know why I did it. I feel bad. I don't know how to make it better. Like, I don't know how to fix this. Like, it's just something I want to cover. We're going right? to pull out the old familiar trash compactor. Yeah. So I think to say to them, the bravery and the impact that you can have by allowing someone the proper steps of healing, allowing them the space and whatever resources they need to go through the healing process, that's how you actually make it go away. I did that to you. I can't take it away. But whatever you need from me, whether it's money or support or encouragement or whatever it is, I'll provide. Yeah. And the apology and genuinely meaning it. I think that like having to admit you're wrong, again, most of us find that very uncomfortable. Like, oh, right, I did that. I'm so sorry. Like it it just doesn't it doesn't always feel good. Like that's part of your process of making things right is, is that actual apology of meaning it. Not because you're like, I'm so sorry, please don't tell mom and dad. Like it's the actual, like, I can't believe I caused that pain. Like, I can't believe I did that. Like, I don't know why I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm really sorry that I did it. I think that that apology is huge. And I think that that allowance of letting someone go through the healing process is part of your own personal healing process mm-hmm. as a perpetrator of causing any kind of pain. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's sexual abuse or not, like any kind of pain you inflict on someone else, you have to allow them whatever, however messy the healing process is for them. And you know, one of the discussions that like I've had in my head multiple times, and I, again, this might be more like Christian culture, but it's like when we forgive, we forget. And so that was put in my face many times. When you forgive somebody, you let yeah. it go. Remember, just like Christ did, he forgets about it, right? I'm sorry, you don't get to control someone's healing process. And you don't get to demand that like, I said, I'm sorry, you said you forgive me. So it disappears right this second. That's actually not how healing works. Healing is onion layers. Like there will be things in, in this life, no matter how much I work through this, that will uncover. It will be a little bit of pull off the scab because mm-hmm. I'll have a new new reason to have to work through the healing process. And allowing someone that mess of like, the healing process is messy. It's good. like there's pus coming out of the wound. My white blood cells are going and like fighting all the infection. That's how, like, it's not a pretty process. It doesn't like your heal, your, a skin healing doesn't just close up and go away. Allowing some that space to have the messy healing is part of what's making this right. 
Yeah, it's uh, it seems kind of selfish uh, to to think. Okay, I I enjoyed myself at your expense for five minutes. I apologize for five minutes. Now you've got five minutes to forgive me. Yes. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It might be fifty years. It might be fifty years. And uh, a guy needs to understand that. And uh, the other thought I mentioned suicide. Um, a lot of us. Uh, you know, and I had my suicidal moments, months, um, where I thought that uh, the world would be just fine without me. Um, and then my wife could marry somebody who would better suited for her, and he would be at least as good a father. And, you know, my mom would feel bad, but whatever. You know, that was my line of thinking at the time. Uh, then I get to see the other side of uh, of suicide, the people who are just destroyed because somebody that they loved uh, killed himself. And I think that, again, that goes back to, I think the person who does that probably, I don't know, but I believe that that person has to feel the pain in all of those people who loved him. And that's hell. What uh, what parting words would you uh, would you have these guys know? Um, what what did it, what does it feel like to be you? What did it do to you? How how have you healed and tried to heal? And how many years has it taken you? And what's that process like? Um, I think it will take a lifetime of healing, and I think allowing a woman. Uh, I mean, again, statistic for, for men, one in 13, allowing yourself or allowing the woman in your life, the time uh, and the healing process. I think it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of love. Um, and again, getting yourself mentally in a space where you don't, where you don't take the credit for it. Like it's not, you can't fix this. You know, like a, a man's mind is like, I see a problem. I'm just going to fix this for you. And it's going to be all better. Exactly. You don't, you don't get that moment in this instance. It's not plumbing. But I Sorry. really, really want that that answer. But being the person who is courageous and strong enough to say, I'm not going to take the reaction you're having right now personally. I know I didn't do this, uh -huh. but I'm going to love you through it. I'm going to love you through the moments where you're sitting on the floor, a crying hot mess, a puddle of like tears and snot. And I'm going to love you even in that moment. That takes a really strong man to say, I'm going to love you even in your messiest moments. Right? The words don't cry don't help. No, don't cry. Or it's all better. Or I'm uncomfortable when you are in tears. That's what that means. <laughs> yeah. Get, prepare yourself for being uncomfortable and being okay with being uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Anytime that you're like uncomfortable and you're like, I want this to go away. I want to just fix it. So she's all better and everything can just disappear. I want you to think about going to the gym. If you go to the gym and you lifted weights and you came home and the next day you didn't feel anything, did you do anything at the gym? You did. You wasted some energy because you should go and you should pump. And the next day she's like, I am so sore. Cause then you know that those muscles got torn and ripped and it's going to be repaired and be bigger the next day. Right? Like you want to put in the heavy lifting work. Healing is heavy lifting and loving someone through the healing process, very heavy lifting. Be okay with the uncomfortable space. And again, it's that consistent encouragement to heal. And 
uh, one of the great things that um, my husband has always done for me, and I have to give him full credit for this, is there have been moments that trauma has come back to rear its ugly head for me, and I wasn't in a space to realize what it was. And so I'm attributing it to my current situation, and I'm like, it's because of this, 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 this. And he's very lovingly, is there anything else that could be contributing to this? And asking the question enough times, I'm like, oh, this is past emotion that's now piled up on top of current emotion and making the current situation much worse and loving me enough to be like, okay, what can we do about it? How can we heal? And loving someone through like getting them the support that they need and realizing that you're probably not equipped to fix it unless you went through school and you've got a doctorate in psychology. <laughs> it's okay to not be the person to fix it, but you can still do the same good by giving them the support and help that they need. Seems to me like uh, men are, are poorly programmed to do what you just described. I'm like, I will put myself through a cheese shredder <laughs> for a week. <laughs> and then after that week, it needs to be done. Yeah. And there's, there's no way that's just not how it works. Um, so we, uh, we need to reconsider, reprogram, reanalyze, recalculate if you're the engineer. Yeah. And, and working on yourself. I mean, the best way that you can be the best partner to someone who's going through trauma is to work on yourself, is to work through your own stuff, because there will be moments that their triggers trigger your triggers. And then we've got a hot mess of explosions and fireworks going off, and they don't even have anything to do with each other, but somehow we've tied them together. Uh -huh. The best kind of partner you can be is the man that works on himself, the man that's like, where are my testosterone levels at? Have I done any physical activity today? Am I fueling myself, like my body, in a way that my mind can work clearly? Am I showing up as the best kind of dad that I can show up so that my wife knows that I am not a threat to my daughters, that I am I'm a safe space? Am I working on myself spiritually so that I can be in tune when something's about to happen and I can be like, hey, let's not head into that situation. I think this is not a good space for you to be in and I don't want to put you into that, that situation. I want to be your protector in the right ways now, right? I wasn't there before, but I'm here now. How can I protect you from this situation? So putting yourself physically, mentally, spiritually in a space where you can actually show up to be the kind of man that can protect her and can help guide her is the best kind of spouse or provider that you can be. Be the kind of dad that if you wanted, you were physically capable of taking out the man that harmed your daughter, but has enough spiritual and emotional control that he chooses not to and chooses the right path. Because she needs me tomorrow. That just takes all the fun out of it. <laughs> Because she needs you tomorrow. <laughs> yes. Hey, thank you for listening to this Manalyzing podcast. I appreciate it. You know, I don't go hunting for men with big stories and big issues to deal with. I find that pretty much any man that I talk to, he's going to have a story. If you're inspired by what you hear, here's my invitation. Join us. Join Manalyzing. Manalyzing.com. Lift and be lifted. Help other men and allow other men to help you. Let's do this together. We look forward to meeting you. Manalyzing.com.